morning we're wrapping up our four-week series called The Book. So go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's where we'll be here shortly. But before we do, today is a, a, a whole, you look at your calendar, um, there's two big moments that happened. No, that's a terrible way to say this. Let's see. There's two reasons why today is important. There it is. October 31st. Um, it represents Halloween. Um, it means there are going to be a lot of people uh, in neighborhoods going around trying to get candy from you. Uh, if you're going to be at home today, go in and flip that light on. Stop by Walmart on the way home. Get the good candy, like the candy we gave you at the door. Because there's a difference between good candy and bad candy. We've all come home with a bag full of Tootsie Rolls and been frustrated. And dots. All right. So let's go out. Some of y'all are arguing with me. Don't, don't step on dots. All right, there's a, there's a flavor out there for everybody, all right? Um, but uh, go out and get the good candy, and, and we've also got uh, cards. Uh, if you'd like to just invite some of your friends and neighbors uh, to come to church here, we've got some cards, some uh, just Lindsay Lane East uh, invite cards at the at Next Steps available on your way out today. You can grab those and hand those out to your neighbors as their kids come along. Um, don't put them in the kids' bags. They're going to get thrown away, but hand them to the parents and invite them to church. Uh, if it's not candy, it gets trashed in that bag. So, um, But please be part of that. But today is also a day in which we celebrate something that happened in 1517 uh, for us as Christians. And that is the Protestant Reformation. And so today is going to be a message in which we talk about God's Word and we hold it high and we look at God's Word and what it means for us as a final authority. But we're also going to be looking at what does it look like um, why was the Reformation important, and how did it play into this idea? And so, um, as I told the first service, um, I paid a thousand dollars to learn Christian history in seminary. I'm giving it to you for free. How about that? Okay. So we're going to walk through Christian history because, again, I think it's important. Because why do we study history? So we don't repeat the same mistakes, right? Um, the church can easily get in a place where we're making some of the same mistakes that we've made in the past. And so I'm going to kind of quickly walk through Christian history. Um, and do it as effectively as I can and also as efficiently. So um, today we're going to look at, uh, again, we're doing a series called The Book, and uh, we've been looking at four particular words in relation to the, the Word of God. And so what are those? Throw those up there if you don't mind. Um, the first one we looked at was needed. Then we looked at enough. Then we, last week was understandable, and today is the word final. We're going to look at what does it mean for the Word of God to be the final authority in our lives. And so that's what we're going to look at. If you've been halfway paying attention in the world, you know that uh, the, the authority of God's Word is highly in question today in a lot of spheres. And we could carry that rabbit trail. We could chase that rabbit trail, uh, begin to look at ways in which the world around us is abandoning biblical principles at a high rate from Hollywood all the way to the government. But as a pastor, I don't believe it's my primary calling to speak to the government nor to speak to Hollywood. I believe it's my job as a pastor to speak to the church. And so today, we're not going to get into all that. What we are going to talk about is how we as the church can find ourselves abandoning the Word of God as the final authority in our lives. And believe it or not, uh, the Christian church today, not everyone sees eye to eye on this issue. we got churches. Uh, there's some that outright, outright deny the fact that we should view God's Word as authority, that it's, uh, it's, it should, shouldn't be viewed that way. These churches are picking and choosing truths that they like. They're ignoring the ones that they don't like, maybe even creating truths of their own by stretching God's word to say something it was never intended to say. Uh, oftentimes, um, trying to fit a liberal social agenda. And before you start pointing a conservative finger, there's two sides to that coin. Churches, leaders, and people today can also 
uh, find themselves in a bad place when we allow conservative politics into our theology. It's just as sketchy, y'all. So I don't know which side of the coin you find yourself on, leaning towards a liberal social agenda or a conservative politic view, but either way, this is the final authority in our lives, and nothing else trumps it. Everything else is secondary. And so today as we're talking about this, if we are truly followers of Christ, we have to be driven by the word as the, as the chief authority, not a liberal social agenda or a conservative political one, and that's where you should insert an amen. Thank you. All right, let me read these verses, verses 16 and 17 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, and then we're going to, I'll pray, and then we'll come back and look at this. All scripture is inspired by God, and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Father, we thank you so much, God, for the way that you speak to us through your word, and I pray, God, that today um, you would illumine our hearts and minds to understand your word, and God, may we reclaim in our personal lives and as a church your word as the final authority in our lives. Um, God, we pray for this, and God, we pray as always that you would teach us to know you today and that you would be with us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, uh, if you've been here through this whole study, you know we've already hit on these verses. Um, we are actually studied through, I think it was 15 through 17 or something like that, of Second Timothy, just two weeks ago when we were talking about God's Word being enough. But that's how cool God's Word is, that I gave you like four points and three sub-points two weeks ago, and yet we're still going back to the same verses today and finding truth for us, okay? And so this is how God's Word works. So uh, we're going to just look at really the first six verses of verse 16. Um, so uh, first, let's look at what Paul means when he says inspired by God. Um, this is showing us, if you're a note taker, uh, I've got a few points today um, so that you can uh, scratch that itch um, of note taking. And so number one is this, the source of authority. Uh, I believe that's what, when, God, when, when Paul says inspired by God, that's what he's referring to is the source of authority. So if you remember from week two message, Paul made up a word when he said inspired by God. Um, in our Bibles, it says inspired by God or something similar but it's actually one compound word in the Greek, which is what Paul wrote in. Paul, this is what, and I try to put myself in Paul's mind. What was Paul thinking? And I believe this is what Paul was thinking. So scripture is God's word, okay? So it, it's like it's his own voice. It's like he breathed out every word of this. What's the word for that? And he racked his brain and racked his brain, and he couldn't come up with anything. So he created one. And they just slammed two words together. Theopneustos. Which even if you don't know Greek, and I don't, that sounds made up, right? Like That sounds like a made up word. And it is, because he took two words. He took the theo, which means God. And he took neustos, which means breath and spirit. And he shoved them together. And so what we have in the word of God is this one word, theopneustos. No record of this word ever being used before Paul jammed it together. But Paul knew what he was doing. He was trying to convey a message through this one word. That all scripture is inspired by God or God breathed. Paul says that the written word, the written word of God, infallible word of God is breathed out by God himself. Paul's clearly saying that the words are inspired. When we read our English translations of the Word of God, we can be confident that the words that we're reading are of God Himself. But I believe there's more than that going on in the Bible. It's not just that the words are inspired. 
It's not as if human authors jotted this stuff down and then God just zapped it with a lightning bolt to make it his word or we just randomly found scrolls that were written in some weird like handwriting and oh this must be God's handwriting like these this is what we also know we also know that the authors were inspired not just the words were inspired but the authors were let's look at second uh, peter 1 20 and 21 above all you know this no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man instead listen to this men spoke from god as they were carried along by the holy spirit so what peter who was one of Jesus' closest disciples, who's writing this after Jesus' death and resurrection, he says, not only are the words inspired, but the, 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 the prophets and the men who spoke of God were also inspired. The authors themselves were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what we don't believe. Just like we don't believe God zapped the Bible and all of a sudden made it holy, we also don't believe that the authors went into some sort of trance. And their pen just magically moved along a paper. That's honestly the, probably the way I viewed it as a kid. Because I had to make sense of it, right? It's like, how could it be God's word if humans wrote it? So I thought, ah, maybe they just like, and then woke up three days later and there's a scroll with a lot of words on it. But that's not what we believe. Because when you read the Bible, what you see is that Paul writes differently than Peter does. Luke's gospel is different than Matthew's. David's psalms stand out because of the way in which he wrote them. You can see the personalities of the author coming through so they didn't write it as drones. They wrote it as human beings with personalities and, and life experiences. We see different literary techniques being used. And it's, it's obvious that these authors were writing as human beings yet still being inspired by God. That's the beauty of how God works. In everything, God can be totally sovereign and in control of every single thing, yet humans still have a choice and freedom and our personalities. Like this is, this is how big God is, and all of that can be used still for His glory. So why, of course, that's how God brought the Bible into existence. So let's go back to 2 Timothy 3. Paul says there's an inspiration present, there's, a, there's the source of the authority, but... Let's ask this question. What parts of the Bible are inspired? This is the reach of authority. Paul says here that all Scripture is God-breathed. But I'm going to just play the devil's advocate for a second and ask the question, for real? All of it. All of it? Have you all read the whole Bible? There's some parts that are weird. Like, look up. There's a, I found an article last, last night. I was looking it up. Article 15, weirdest verses in the Bible. I couldn't use any of them. Because I knew there'd be kids in the room. There's some weird stuff in there. It's okay to acknowledge it. Okay? The good morning, the lack of good morning is blending over here into the rest of the sermon. There's food waiting outside, y'all. Come on. The more you feed, the more you talk to me, the more we'll get done with this, all right? But Genesis 10, just quickly. Say Genesis 10. These are the family records of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They had sons after the flood. Jason's sons, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, Tiras, Gomer's sons, Ashkenaz, Ripheth, Togarmah, Javan's sons, Elisha, Tarshish, 
uh, Kittim, Dedanim, from these descendants, the people of the coasts and islands spread out into their lands according to their clans and their nations with which its own language. Yah goes on 20 or 30 more verses. Like, if we just read that, sometimes we can begin to think, there's no way. Those are the parts of the Bible. What about Leviticus? All the laws and all the details of how all that stuff was supposed to work. It can be very easy for us to look at the Bible and begin to question, there's no way that the whole Bible is inspired by God. But that's what Paul is saying. Paul says, all Scripture is God-breathed. Even the strange things that make us go, huh? Every bit of it is inspired by God from beginning to end. So what does that mean for us? Because here's the deal. If the book was just a history of a people group, the history of, uh, of the Israelites, or even a well-thought-out collection of epic literature, it would lack ultimate authority. None of your kids are coming home with their history books going, my life's been changed. Did you know about the Civil War? Did you know about the War of 1812? Like Nobody's lives are probably being changed by that. It's because it's, those history books are not having authority. They're also not, well, they may be coming home with some novel that they've read. Hopefully they're not and going, oh, my life's been changed. Yes, there are some characters. If this is the case, there may be some interesting characters that we can connect with or some pointers about life, how it could be more enjoyable or less stressful. But at the end of the day, if that's all God's word was, it would not have authority. Because God's word was spoken by God himself in some form of inspiration through human authors. It's got to be held as such. The word of God. There's something that happens when we as humans try to view God's word this way. When we come to God's word saying this is authority. We have an enemy in that, in that thought. What do we see in Genesis 2 and 3? We see the story of a couple named Adam and Eve. They got a pretty sweet gig. Uh, living literally in the presence of God in, in a physical way that, that maybe we get glimpses of here on earth. Um, and it's, it's what the whole purpose of God's word is and the, the spirit in us is to bring that kingdom to the earth now. But we don't get to taste it the way that Adam and Eve did. They had not sinned yet. And so they were in this perfect environment with God in, in a real physical way. And God's word was not yet written, even the Old Testament. None of it's written. There's no, There's none. But they had God's actual voice. God's there in the garden with them and he's speaking to them. It was spoken. God gives them. When he, when he tells them what he wants them to do and not do, he doesn't speak through a prophet. He just speaks. He just speaks. And I've had a lot of people tell me, man, if God were to come in my bedroom while I was asleep and wake me up from a cold sleep, then I'd listen to him. Well, I would argue like he has. Get to open your Bible. But that's what we have with Adam and Eve. We have them actually hearing the voice of God. And I would argue, man, if God spoke to me like with a voice, I don't think I'd have confusion. When my wife speaks to me, I have confusion sometimes. When my kids speak to me, sometimes I don't listen well. Right? But when God speaks to me, I think I'm going to listen. Surely there would be no confusion. Surely they would not doubt anything God said. And then we get to Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent is the most cunning of all the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, 
Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? This is where we see the enemy of authority. This new character enters the story, a sneaky snake who's trying to bring confusion and doubt into the heart and mind of Eve. And he asks these four words, Did God really say? I mean, I w- I'll argue. Like what he was trying to do was create a, what, what I'm just going to call for this whole sermon, a truth gap, a place of confusion in her mind where she's unsure of that truth. And then Satan's goal is to get her to fill that truth with a new truth. To remove the truth that God had placed there. To doubt it, be confused about it or whatever, and replace it or fill it with something else. It's the same question that's at the heart of many today as we wrestle with the authority of God's word. God begin, uh, Satan begins to put in our mind, did God really say that? Did he really say that that was a sin? Did he really say that you should live, live your life that way? Does it really make sense that a book that's over 2,000 years old at its earliest point actually applies to your life today? Or did God really say? When that doubt and confusion creeps in, just as it did with, with Eve, man will inevitably look for truth in other places or created himself to fill that gap if we don't come back to God's word and fill it here. This is the issue that we see in churches today, and I'm going to show you. Churches that are uncomfortable with some of the characteristics of God. People don't like the idea that God demands justice. That doesn't sound like a good God to me. And so that creates a gap. God can't be just. He can't demand justice. So then we've got to fill it with something. So then we begin to say, well, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God demanded justice. But the New Testament, it's all about Jesus. It's about love and grace and hugs and kisses. You realize the whole thing from beginning to end is about love and grace and justice and because God never changes. So we begin to we begin to twist God's word into something we want so that we can feel that. There's another one. People, people say this. I don't like that part of the Bible that says no one can come to God except through Jesus. You know, John fourteen six thing. What about people of other faiths? Surely there's grace for them. So creates a gap, a confu- confusion and, and doubt creates a gap. And what do we do? We begin to say people of other faiths, they're worshiping the same God. They just call him by a different name. But, but, but they're following him. You see how we do this? That is so easy to do. It's so dangerously easy. This is not a new problem in the church. Throughout Christian history, the driving point for every conflict in the church has been what is the final authority for us? In the first few centuries of the church, this is where I become history teacher, okay? I'm going to try to keep your attention by flailing my arms a lot and doing things with my voice. To keep your attention. But I promise you, everybody that walked out of the first service said that was really neat. So pay attention, okay? This is really cool. This is our history as a church. In the first few centuries of the church, leaders began to recognize what we talked about last week, that God's word is understandable. And there are some passages that we need to take more care with because they were being because they can easily be misinterpreted. And that's what starts happening. And so in the book of Acts, the early apostles who were essentially leading the church, were still, they're still trying to figure out what church looks like. Christ has just left. We're, I mean, we're just a couple of decades away from Christ ascending back into heaven. Can you imagine? 
Thousands of people now looking at the apostles going, so what do we do now? We don't have the New Testament yet. We don't have any of that. And so in the book of Acts, what the apostles, the apostles were all Jewish men. And so what they viewed Christianity as was Reformed Judaism. So to be a Christian meant you first had to be a Jew. And that seemed to be working for a while until the Spirit of God began to move in other places. And these Gentiles who have never been circumcised, they don't follow the dietary laws, they don't go to temple. The Spirit of God begins to fill them just as he did the Jews at Pentecost. And so, they're weirded out by this. So several key leaders, the apostles and Paul um, and so many other, uh, several other key leaders from the early Jesus movement gather together in Jerusalem in 50 AD and they discuss the question, who can be saved? And how does salvation work? They decided that, praise the Lord, that the Gentiles don't have to first become Jews, which is good news for us. They could simply follow Jesus apart from circumcision and dietary laws and, and the customs that the Jews followed. This became a prototype. This, this decision and this process became a prototype for several councils that would follow. Some of them were wrestling with really important theological issues that you and I take for granted today, but some of those, especially in later years, were not as fruitful. But the next really important council happened in 325 in Nicaea. In Nicaea, there was a growing theological issue called Arianism. And Arianism uh, was the idea that Jesus was totally man, that, there, that the Son of God was not eternal and he was not God. He was simply a created being who was born of Mary and that Jesus was not fully God. Well, if you've read your New Testament, you know that Jesus claims that for himself multiple times. And so the council met together. They opened God's word because at that point we've got a good, clear, old and New Testament. And they began to read it together. And the council found that Arianism was heretical, meaning going against God's word. The next debate occurred at the Council of Constantinople in 381. This one dealt heavily with the role and nature of the Spirit of God. Again, ideas that you and I just take for granted, especially if you've grown up in the church. And this, this council, along with Nicaea, really provided the clarity for the term that we now use, the Trinity. Which is the idea, if you're not familiar, it's the idea that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the same time. It's not a biblical word necessarily, but it's a biblical idea. And this, it all goes back to these two councils where they were wrestling with God's word and defining for the church what this looked like. Several other councils were held in centuries following, mostly dealing with Jesus being human and divine because our minds can't wrap around that. Because there was a truth gap that people had allowed Satan in and they were trying to fill it with a hundred other things. These things... These councils addressed Arianism, Eutychianism, Nestorianism, Pelagianism, and a bunch of other isms that you can impress people with over coffee. But what we don't believe, just so you know as a church, we don't believe that the findings of those councils have any bearing over us as believers, meaning that those, the findings of those councils, we do not hold along with God's word. 
Uh, that is the stance of some churches, and that's not what we believe. We believe those councils were super important for, for framing theology and the way that we read the Bible, but we don't believe those, those, those uh, findings are in themselves inspired by God. These church leaders simply gathered around God's word to bring to light the truth that God had already told us and to prayerfully consider these false teachings. With each of these heretical views, the issue at the heart, guys, the issue at the heart of every, every one of the issues was what is the final authority? What is the final authority in our lives? Is it reason? Is it, is it tradition? Or is it the word of God? There was often something else playing into the decisions they were coming to. And it was this strong connection to the Roman Empire. And from 334 up to 385, the Roman Empire begins to adopt Christianity as its, as its religion. And the Roman Empire becomes the, the hub of Christianity in the world. Which wasn't necessarily a bad thing. But what naturally began to happen is that the church leaders began to morph from spiritual pastors and elders into politicians who were vying for greater and greater uh, authority. They began to purchase positions as priests and as bishops. This is what began to happen. This idea led to the Crusades, in which a holy war was waged against Muslim nations, or maybe in an effort to secure holy sites, but also definitely because there was a disagreement theologically. The army marched with crosses on their shields, claiming to be battling for the cause of Christ with the blood of other people on their swords. It was not just political and military power that these Christians held. Again, they were very rich. They became very rich. The church began selling these positions to the highest bidder. Can you imagine? I promise you I wouldn't be your pastor. I ain't got a lot to buy with. I'd be going somewhere else. Find me a cheaper church. I don't know. Y'all too good. Y'all would have been an expensive one, I think. But that's what was going on. They also began to not only put these people with money and leadership, they also required a lot of the people in the church. They taxed them heavily just to perform spiritual rituals that these people had become accustomed to and, and believed connected them with God. The church was taxing them for it. All these practices continued to grow in popularity through the, through the late 1400s and early 1500s. The corruptness of leadership began to affect the reputation and ministry of the church because what was really at stake was that God's word was being abandoned as the final authority. Listen to me before we go any further. If you're not a Christian, you haven't been in church much. I just told you the nasty. I got some more to share. But our history as the church is not all roses and flowers and smell goods. There's a lot of bad stuff in our past, but listen to me when I say this. The only reason those bad things happen is because people abandoned God's word as the final authority. 
the church does not look like that and will not look like that as long as we stay centered on God's word. So don't turn your back on the church because of our past. Help us have a future by centering ourselves on God's word. The corruptness of leadership, again, was affecting the reputation. The position of Pope became a big deal by this time. The Pope Pope was beginning to speak as if he had the same authority as the word of God. And so long as church leaders and pastors and bishops and all that, as long as they agreed on a decision or a practice, even if it had little biblical evidence for it, it was viewed as biblical truth. The church also began to to give more authority to books outside those established as God's word in the Old and New Testament. This led to several strange theological paths that went against what the rest of the Bible was saying. Just for an example, the existence of a purgatory. These books called the Apocrypha would eventually become scripture to the Catholic Church in 1546 after the Reformation, really as a response to it. God's word had been lost in the church among all the other voices. People began listening to man and tradition more than listening to God. Now, one particularly particularly creepy practice of some church leader was the selling of indulgences. And I want to, this is important for understanding the Reformation. The church was teaching that when people died, they went to a place called purgatory, though it's not found in the Bible. There they would wait to see whether they would spend eternity in heaven or hell. It was a waiting room, and if you had not done enough good, uh, then you knew where you were sent. However, um, people were encouraged to pray for those loved ones who had died, that God would show grace to them, and that those prayers could move someone from purgatory into the presence of God. But you know what does better than prayers? Money, baby. Yeah, money. And so that's literally what began to happen. The church began to sell a piece of paper. If you'd pay enough money, they would give you a piece of paper with your dead loved one's name on it, showing that because you gave to the church, your loved one was no longer in purgatory. Now, church, that's, that gives me an eerie feeling. That's a pretty effective money-making scheme, but it makes bad theology. What we see is that the selling of these indulgences led was all a money-making scheme to build one of the nicest church buildings ever to be seen, St. Peter's Basilica, which still stands today in the Vatican City. Beautiful. It's really cool. I'd like to go see it someday. It was built on the back of the selling of indulgences absolutely just wrong view and remember here again this is let's let's not let's we're not laying blame to any church any belief any idea we're we're the the fault of all of christian history is because we abandoned the final authority of god's word this is what happened This practice of selling indulgences did not sit well with all leaders, though. In particular, one young German Augustinian monk named Martin Luther. Luther had shown great promise as a young monk, was given a professor position. He had a Ph.D. He was very learned in the scriptures, but had always listened to what other people told him. As he began to preach through the Psalms and then later Romans, his eyes were illumined 
to truths he had never been taught before. He was seeing God's word in a whole new way as he was preparing to teach others the word of God. Things that were that almost went directly against what the church was teaching. He realized that way too much, too many of the key doctrines of the church were born out of man's ideas rather than the Bible. And Luther began to teach passionately in, the, in this direction. He coined the term sola scriptura, which is Latin for uh, scripture alone. And that became his message. What are we driven by? Scripture alone. Where do we find our theology? Scripture alone. Luther became emboldened by the Holy Spirit to bring reform to the church. Let me step aside again for a second. Luther didn't complain. Luther was trying to fix things from within. In church, God honored, I mean, yeah, God honored it. God does not honor complaining. Don't be a complainer. Be somebody willing to take part in the solution. And that's what Luther was trying to do. Luther wasn't trying to point at the church and say, you're wrong. He was trying to say, we're wrong. <laughs> Let's do this together. Way too much complaining in the church today. Let's be part of the solution. So he wrote out 97 statements, hoping it would strike. He wrote it in Latin so he could, he, it could be read among all the, the, the most learned people. But nobody cared about it. It got, at best, a little yawn from other people. And so he was pretty stubborn, so he did it again. This time he settled for 95 statements. Maybe they'll read it then. He wrote it again in Latin. And these statements were directly in regards to the selling of indulgences, the theology behind the idea in the first place. And this one somebody took and translated into German, which was the common language of the day. And there was this little invention called the printing press. And they started cranking out copies of Luther's 95 statements, the 95 theses is what it's known as now, in German. And it began to spread like wildfire. The investigation into Luther's challenges lasted years and years. And though the church condemned his beliefs, and they didn't side with him, and they weren't convinced the damage had been done, people began to question a lot of things the church was teaching that were contrary to God's word. Luther wasn't the first person to seek reform. Wycliffe, Huss, and others that came before him. But Luther's the one that added the spark where gasoline had already been poured. And what followed after Luther were leaders popping up all over the world, standing up against false doctrine. Guys like Zwingli in Switzerland, later Calvin in Geneva, these guys began to question what the church was teaching. All of this led to new branches of Christianity outside of the Catholic Church. These newly directed con congregations were going back to God's word as ultimate authority and asking the question that had not been asked in a while. What does God's word alone say how I should live my life and how we should function as a church? Those are questions that had not been addressed in a while. This was, again, note takers, I'm still with you, the return of authority. Because see, over time, tradition and man's opinion had become the authority in the church. 
But these new churches were starting all over in many ways, and, and God began to bless them and grow them because they were following Him and His Word. The Protestant Reformation was a crucial moment in Christian history. It was a turning point that allowed believers a healthy place to begin to grow in their faith. It brought congregations back to a biblical model for their purpose and scope. This was huge. But my favorite thing about the Reformation, my favorite thing, of all the good that it did, is that it led to Lindsay Lane East. It led to this church. Lindsay Lane East is a product of the Protestant Reformation. If Luther and others don't lead a return to the final authority of God's word, you and I are still chanting in Latin and unable to read a Bible in our own language. But because of them, we're gathered together each Sunday, studying God through his word, worshiping him together in a common language. But all that was fought for. And, and all, that, all that was gained through Zwingli and Luther and Calvin and so many others now sits on our shoulders. Church, the pressure is off of the reformers. The pressure is off of the dead. They helped us return to the authority of God's word, but it's our job to stay here. It's our job to center our lives and our church on this word over everything else. This is the obedience to authority. Church, I beg you today, cling to the word of God because of what it is. The word of God. The creator of all things has given his followers this message. And may we as people at Lindsay Lane East dive in, read, study, chew on, digest, meditate, wrestle with, memorize, and put into practice the message he left us. In our individual lives, we've got to allow God to shape us through his word. We need to listen to what God calls sin and ask him to remove the desires for such things from our heart. I didn't say from our government. I said from our heart. We need to pray for those things, guys. I'm not saying that. But there's a, an analogy Jesus uses about a, calling out the speck in someone else's eye when there's a plank in your own. In the church, for years, we've been calling out sins in the world around us and not dealing with our own. And your pastor is guilty of it sometimes, too. So let's go to God's word and let's not let's not read it going, man, yeah, I got a neighbor that needs to hear that. Government and politicians need to hear this. No, you need to. And I need to. This is the message of God for us. We can exchange all of the all of the things that we pursue in our hearts naturally. God wants to change those and begin to help us pursue the things of God. So in our individual lives, we've got to find authority in God's word. But as a church together, we need to maintain God's word as authority. We cannot allow human tradition and man's opinions to rise to the place of authority. Because that is the Bible, right? And I know you'll argue we don't do that, but I'll tell you, yeah, we do. That's why we think things like, man, I wish we sang songs like that other church. 
I wish Heath preached like fill-in-the-blank pastor. So do I. So do I. I wish I wasn't so weird. But that's this who I am. I pray every day, God, make me some great evangelist. And this is what you get. So I feel like there's a reason. I don't know. When we ask all these things, we want to do things. We don't want to do things like we've never done them before. Or we want to do things like everybody else around us does. Guys, can we just, as the church, get rid of all these garbage comments and these garbage thoughts that end in a place of bickering and fighting and instead find ourselves centered on God's Word and ask the question, what does God's Word say for our church? Now, what does the culture around us say? Now, what are other churches doing? What are other churches preaching? What other music is going on? What other structures are out there? Let's ask the question, what does God's Word say for us? May we not be driven by the expectations of man, but be driven by God's Word. Simply led to do what God has called us to do in the most effective possible way by using the gifts and personalities present in our church to see the glory of God in us, our neighbors, and the nations. May we not allow our theology to be shaped by TV preachers or podcasts, but instead by the Word of God. Church, it's right here. This is it. It's here. Let's read it together and let's learn what it says and let's help one another grow in the grace and knowledge of, our, of the Lord Jesus Christ that this book is screaming to us about. One of the major conflicts Luther had with the church was their, their, their thoughts regarding sin. As Luther began to study the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1 in particular, he was hit between the eyes with the fact that we are messed up. And not just a little bit. Romans 1 says that we are wretched sinners. And as, as, as Luther began to recognize that, that was not what the church was teaching at the time. It was that we're kind of bad. And Luther realized the Bible says we are all bad. And I know you're thinking, I'm a good dude. I'm a good old boy. No, you're not. Your pastor's not a good old boy. I'm a sinner. And because of that sin... The Bible says that we are separate. I don't care if it's a little tiny lie you told when you were five and you've been perfect ever since. You're separated from God. You're separated from God. And because, just like Adam and Eve were removed from the presence of sin because of their God and their son Cain was removed from the presence of God, so we too are removed and cannot get back on our own. But Luther saw in Romans 1 and the rest of the book that God made a way for us to be made right through Jesus on the cross. The righteous life, this was the separation. This is what wasn't being taught. The righteousness of God was not something that man could achieve. It was something that Christ had achieved for us. This was it, y'all. This was the driving force behind Luther's theology. The righteousness of God was not something you could attain, but it was something Christ attained for you. And when you would repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, though you still a wretched sinner, the righteousness of God becomes yours through Christ. And when God sees you, we can now be in his presence because of Christ's perfect life. Today, if you've never trusted fully in the name of Jesus as your Savior, we'd love to talk with you about that, how you can repent and believe in Jesus. We'd love to talk with you about that. We're going to sing one more song here in a second. I'm going to stand down here. 
and uh, and be here to talk with you and pray with you. We'll have counselors by the back door as well if you'd rather go back there, and, and they'll take you out to a room and just have a conversation with you, um, just privately, away from everybody else. If you're already a Christian, though, search your heart today and ask the hard questions. What am I building my life on? Am I building my life on any other thing than God's Word? If so, I speak on behalf of the authority of God's Word. I think, stop it. Stop. Let's let God's Word drive everything that we do. This altar will be open for you to bring prayers uh, from other people, other people that are in your life that are struggling with things. You can bring those prayers to the altar, pray right where you are, whichever way. You may also want to come to this altar or pray right where you are and repent of, of the sins of, of authority in your life. Let it be so. You may also want to come and, and talk to me about any kind of decision you've got. We'd love to do that. Also, I have decision counselors by the back door. I'm going to say a word of prayer. And you guys, after I pray and say amen, let's stand together and let's respond however we need to. Amen. Let's go. Father, we thank you, God, that... Uh, that you have given us uh, your word, and God, it is um, it is our ultimate authority. God, whether we acknowledge it or not, you've given it to us, and it's authoritative. God, I pray that, that, that Heath Haney would stop fighting against it. God, that I would not allow other things into that into that authoritative role in my life, God, not not my own family, God, not traditions, not ideas, not my family history, but God, only your word. That what you say in here, interpreted properly, becomes applied to my life every day. God, I'm so thankful to be able to worship you today and ask you to do this in me. I ask you to do it in us as a church. God, help us today to respond in the way that we need to. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Guys, you can stand, respond however God leads you to. Amen.